Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we continue our series on COVID-19 in Weld County's Latino communities. It is overwhelming as an English speaker, so I can't even imagine, you know, as a Spanish speaker. Coming up, we'll meet some of the trusted community members who are stepping up to spread the word about COVID-19 and the new vaccines to fight it. That story and much more just ahead. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. For many kids around the state, this week marks a return from the winter break. And this month, at least for some districts, marks a return to in-person learning. School districts in Greeley, Fort Collins, and Boulder, to name a few, have all announced plans to bring students back to the brick and mortar at some point in the coming weeks. Of course, January is also a key month in the vaccine rollout. And last week, an updated vaccine plan from the state moved essential workers in education up on the vaccine priority list. Joining us now to talk about where educators fall on the list overall and what it could mean for a return to in-person learning is Erica Meltzer, Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Hi, Erica. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Let's begin with the vaccine priority list. As mentioned, educators have moved into the first phase of the plan. Tell us about this change in vaccine priority and what we know about when educators might begin to receive the vaccine. Yeah, this was a a big change that the governor announced in between Christmas and New Year's. Educators, which includes K-12 school staff and child care workers, had previously been in phase two of the state's vaccination plan. They were moved up along with other essential workers like grocery store workers and people who work in meatpacking plants into phase 1B. Phase 1B comes immediately after frontline healthcare workers who are taking care of COVID patients and people who live in nursing homes. Those two categories were the the number one priority. That's who's been getting the vaccine so far. Phase 1B now includes those essential workers that I mentioned, as well as healthcare workers who don't directly work with COVID patients, first responders like police and paramedics, And significantly, it includes everyone 70 and older. And the governor's office made clear that actually within phase 1B, that 70 and over is a really top priority. And then they said that local health departments were going to be working with employers for these folks in that essential worker category, which would include educators and childcare workers. In terms of when they will get the vaccine, the governor's office is estimating February and March will be the main vaccination period for those folks. At the same time, it's worth noting that we still have not finished vaccinating everyone in that 1A category. And week to week, we don't know exactly how much vaccine Colorado will be getting. So it's a little bit developing as we go in terms of what the actual time frame is. Right. Well, I wonder what the reaction to this news has been from educators, because it sounds, you know, the, the change in vaccine priority is clear, but a lot of this other stuff is unknown. The initial reaction was very happy, very celebratory. We did see some comments of like, I'm a teacher and there's no way I'm getting this vaccine. Like there are some people who just don't 
trust the process by which it was developed. But I would say the large majority reaction was a lot of excitement and gratitude. And then as more information came out about the time frame and, and the fuzziness, we started to see more of a mixed reaction. We've definitely seen some teachers who feel like they would really like to be vaccinated before they return to the classroom. And school districts are moving ahead, bringing students back independent of the vaccine schedule. They're not necessarily waiting until everyone is vaccinated because that's going to be a multi-week process that you know, it could take six, eight weeks, potentially longer to get everyone vaccinated. And so I think there's some mixed feelings. People feel like, oh, it's so close. Like, why can't we just wait longer? Other folks feel like we've been out of the classroom so long, we really need to bring students back and we can't be held up on this uncertain time frame. Well, speaking of time frames, you did kind of mention that the overall return to school time frame and the educator vaccine plan time frame kind of aren't congruent. How is this change in vaccine plan really affecting the return to school, if at all? I think that administrators are really hopeful that having teachers vaccinated will mean two things. One, that teachers have a lot more peace of mind and less stress teaching in person. And also that it will change who has to quarantine after an exposure, as we've discussed before. These quarantine requirements to limit the spread of COVID have been very disruptive to school operations, especially when community spread is very high and has been, and there's just been a lot of staffing shortages associated with people being out because either they got sick or they were exposed. And so I think the hope is that with as more teachers become vaccinated, that they can keep more people in the classroom and just provide a more, a more continuous, consistent experience that would benefit students. As we head back to classes after the winter break, can you kind of give us a general picture of where schools are at? Are we still mostly remote in some of the biggest school districts? So most of the school districts are remote this week. Some of them are remote until the middle of January, but most school districts are planning a phased return of students this month. Everyone's keeping a close eye on the overall number of cases in the community and hoping that they stay at the level that we're at now or come down even further because the the fewer cases there are in the community, the more that facilitates school operations. Of course, people are worried that we'll see a spike associated with the holidays. And the other thing that people are concerned about is we have had this new, more contagious variant show up in Colorado, and we don't know how that's going to affect cases, particularly as the governor has lifted restrictions on a lot of other business operations, including indoor dining around the state. And so we'll just be watching to see how that return to school goes, if they're able to implement their plans, you know, also watching to see how the vaccine distribution goes and if we're able to have a smooth rollout or if it ends up being kind of difficult to get those those shots in the arms of school staff. Erica Meltzer is Bureau Chief at Chalkbeat Colorado. Thanks for joining us, Erica. Thanks for having me. This week, we're exploring why Latinos have been hard hit by COVID-19 in Weld County. Some of it has to do with work-related risks and who was considered an essential worker early on. Another factor is the communication barriers that have kept people from getting information about the virus, particularly undocumented Spanish-speaking Latinos. KUNC's Lee Patterson has more on the messengers who are working to bridge that gap. High infection rates among Latinos in Colorado come down to a couple of factors, like working conditions, living situations, and for some, language barriers. A silver van pulls up to a coronavirus testing site at La Familia, 
a daycare and family services center in Fort Collins. Christina Diaz and her co-worker hand fluffy pink unicorn stuffed animals to the kids in the back seat. They load boxes of food into the back. We have 200 boxes. And you're going through them? Yeah. Diaz wears a black face mask with her name written across it in red cursive. She's one of several community health workers at the site today. They're called Promotoras. My job is regional coordinator for Project Protect Promotora Network. She oversees Larimer and Weld counties. Promotoras don't necessarily have formal medical training, but they know people. They're connected. Diaz, for example, has served on the boards of Northern Colorado nonprofits. Until recently, she was a social worker. Diaz's strategy today is to draw people in with food and then say, hey, you know, by the way, we have COVID testing right here. Do you have any of these symptoms? Do you know anyone? So they're going to leave here and then they're going to go home and be like, hey, I just went and got this food box and I got tested. And then we're going to have more people here in the afternoon. <laughs> Promotores typically work with public health departments to reach underserved Latinos on issues from smoking to cervical cancer. Through a federal grant, this group launched in September to get the word out on COVID. We provide materials, you know, such as the masks, the hand sanitizers. They go to where people live and work, farms, warehouses, mobile home parks. You know, it is overwhelming as an English speaker, so I can't even imagine as a Spanish speaker. And even though Spanish speaking, not all of them tend to be literate. So you can't just hand out COVID information. If they are taking that farm home, you know, they're probably sharing it with their 8-year-old, their 12-year-old. And then all of a sudden, it's the job of the 12-year-old to educate the family on it. In addition to these barriers, many workers are scared or distrustful of the government. You don't know how to ask for help, and you prefer don't do it. Soraya Leone is a promotora who lives and works in Greeley. That's where the vast majority of cases are concentrated. She's seen confusion and disbelief about the virus, but when she talks to workers about it, she says they listen. In part, because when Leone divorced her American husband, she became undocumented and needed help herself. I was there. I was in the same situation, you know. I know what what you feel when you have these shoes. Weld County has worked with promotoras in the past, but not specifically on COVID. The county's health department didn't want to do a recorded interview for this story, but in an email, a spokesperson outlined what they have done. Messages on billboards, posters and social media, and interviews on Spanish-language radio. Dr. Mark Wallace used to head up that department until he retired in May. To what degree do you feel that confusion, misunderstanding, lack of culturally appropriate information has contributed to a high infection rate among Latinos in Walt County? I think it has contributed. Um, I think it has potentially in the beginning was more uh, impactful, um, you know, that lack of clear communication. Wallace now heads up Sunrise Community Health, a group of clinics in northern Colorado that primarily serve Latinos. He says they've gotten a lot better about talking about what isolation and quarantine actually mean in daily life, for example. The next communication issue, the vaccine. It's likely to have some similar challenges. I'm not I'm not going to be Pollyannish about it. Polling has shown around 60 percent of Coloradans are planning to get the coronavirus vaccine. Numbers are slightly lower among blacks and Latinos. Wallace thinks it'll be people like his bilingual medical assistants who will be effective at getting the word out. If the Pope got a COVID vaccine, 
that would go a long way. Dr. Michelle Barron is an infectious disease expert at UC Health in Aurora. She says that big names like the Pope and public health messaging is all important. But she also hopes that her mom, who is from Mexico, will get the vaccine and then tell her friends. That would be the like the gossip. It's like, did you hear Nora got her vaccine? Oh, we should go get our vaccine, too. Like that, I think, is the power. Barron says that community members and health workers like Promotoris are really important pathways for information. But the issue of communication is complex. The messaging that we're putting out there may work for 80 percent of our you know, population. But what do we do different for those 20 percent? Some work is being done at the state level. Colorado's public health department has its Champions for Vaccine Equity initiative. The nonprofit Immunize Colorado has its Vaccine Equity Task Force. Both the state and Weld County plan to work with Promotoras on vaccine education. Christina Diaz, the Promotora heading up the Food Boxes event in Fort Collins, says they worked with the state on this testing event and expects to do more with the vaccine. There's mixed emotions, <laughs> um, but definitely we will inform most, most definitely um, on it just because we're not the one who decides for, for these individuals. They need to decide on their own. Our job is to inform. Is that going to be a complicated thing to talk about? Most likely. It's hard to get them here just to do the COVID testing, so I can't imagine a vaccine. Lee Patterson, KUNC. Tomorrow, we'll continue our series on the impacts of COVID-19 among Weld County's Latino communities by examining the role of personal responsibility and what one Hispanic-led church is doing to keep the doors open and the congregation safe. You can find more on this series, including Spanish versions of the stories at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Earlier this week, Maria Birkenkotter was sworn in as Colorado's newest Supreme Court justice. She replaces Chief Justice Nathan B. Coates, who spent 20 years on the high court, although another judge will succeed him in that role. Governor Jared Polis appointed Birkenkotter back in November. That's when we first spoke with Aya Gruber, a professor at the University of Colorado Law School, to learn more about the role of the state's highest court. So most people have heard of the U.S. Supreme Court and understand that they are the court of last resort to interpret federal statutes and also determine basically the extent of our rights under the United States Constitution. The Colorado Supreme Court plays a very similar role, but just on a state level scale. So the Colorado Supreme Court is tasked with interpreting legislation from the Colorado state legislature and also determining the constitutionality of those statutes, both under Colorado's constitution and the U.S. Constitution. And what sort of cases do they typically hear? And and do they need to be specific to Colorado? Well, there needs to be some jurisdiction that the court has over the case. So if it was a case arising out of, you know, a dispute in Nebraska, wholly within Nebraska, that would not end up normally not end up in front of the Colorado Supreme Court. So the type of cases that the Colorado Supreme Court sees are as varied as the type of cases that the U.S. Supreme Court sees. Anything from Colorado 
state prosecutions of criminal defendants and what might be going on with their trials and their rights and maybe the searches and seizures involved in their cases to a number of legislative initiatives, whether it's on taxes or, for example, one very controversial one in some circles that came out recently was the Colorado Supreme Court decision to uphold the ban on high capacity magazines for firearms. So it, it just can be a range of things. It could involve water rights, land rights, child custody, anything that comes under the jurisdictions of Colorado statutes or otherwise under Colorado law can potentially end up in front of the Colorado Supreme Court. And so there are seven justices serving on the Colorado Supreme Court, and all seven of them have been appointed by Democrats. Is that unusual? Is that a coincidence? That is not unusual in a state where you've had a Democratic governor for many, many terms. Um, that will tend to happen as you have retirements. It's not unusual to have a Supreme Court that's entirely Republican, where you have Republican executives. So, no, you know, I think this tracks Colorado's movement from red to purple to blue. You see the filtering out of that school. That being said, you know, when I look at most of the judges that are on the Supreme Court, they have prosecution backgrounds, they have government backgrounds, and they have, you know, large law firm backgrounds. Those are not considered to be the most radical left backgrounds either. I think, you know, if painting with a broad brush, we might characterize the Colorado Supreme Court as democratic, but moderate democratic, much like we might characterize Colorado. I don't think there are any sort of radical leftists on the Colorado Supreme Court. Aya Gruber is a professor at the University of Colorado Law School. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Remote learning and other pandemic-related complications made 2020 an especially difficult year for the already difficult task of teaching Colorado's school-aged children. It takes a special kind of dedication and skill to reach and inspire students under these circumstances. As a new semester begins for most Colorado students, we're lucky to hear from one of those very special educators. Gerardo Munoz teaches social studies to middle and high schoolers at the Denver Center for International Studies, and he was recently named Colorado Teacher of the Year. We spoke to him shortly after he received that designation, and he began by describing what it meant to him to be named Teacher of the Year. When I started in this career 21 years ago, um, when I envisioned what the Colorado Teacher of the Year looked like, I didn't picture myself. I came through a non-traditional uh, teacher prep pipeline. Um, I've been told my approach is sort of non-traditional also. And so it, it's a huge honor. Um, you know, and I think the thing that really hit it home for me was to see who the other finalists were. I mean, these are some really, really phenomenal educators, and it was pretty incredible. Um, as it turns out, getting Colorado Teacher of the Year isn't um, necessarily a culmination, as I think some folks would see it. In, in other words, this isn't you get to the end of a long and storied career and boom, it's a ticker tape parade and lots of trophies and ribbon cutting ceremonies. 
Um, what I've realized and what I'm excited about is it's kind of a beginning. It's an opportunity to have a platform to amplify and elevate the stories of public school teachers all over the state of Colorado to kind of um, to tell stories about who we are and what we do and what our communities mean to us. So um, far from being the finish line, I actually kind of view this as a start line in making meaningful change in education. Well, now that you're at the starting line, do you have any sort of priorities or, or particular interests that you're planning to highlight now that you've got this sort of platform? Absolutely. I, you know, for a really long time, I've uh, been a big believer in community-based schools. I, I grew up in Denver, Colorado. I am a graduate of the Denver Public Schools District that I work for now. And over time, I've noticed that Denver Denver's a very diverse place. There are a lot of different schools in different communities with different needs and priorities. I've realized that what we really need is conversations about how we can all be invested in the educational process. And so another priority I have is to ensure that education becomes a place where we can learn about the things that are happening in the world and where we can connect with the communities of which we are a part. Well, I wanted to ask about some of the challenges to being an effective teacher during these circumstances that we're, we're talking about, remote learning and not getting that same face time with students, what kind of challenges have you seen? And you mentioned earlier in the, in the conversation that uh, you have maybe sort of a non-traditional approach. So is there any sort of non-traditional advice you might have for anyone else dealing with what sort of challenges we're talking about? You know, I draw energy from the people around me and in particular drawing energy from the young people that come into my class who just always have my mind going. They always have me thinking about new possibilities and new um, interpretations of historical events. And, and I'm just not getting that. And they're not getting it either. And so it's, it's really tough um, because none of us is good at this yet. So in terms of non-traditional advice, how we balance the need for the delivery of content and the development of skills with social emotional needs that our students have. We, you know, we have students who will, they'll disappear. They won't come to class for days on end. And, and it's because they are down, they are struggling. Um, some of them are struggling because they're lonely without their friends. Others are struggling because now that they have a little more quote unquote free time, they need to work and they need to take care of younger siblings. And in really concrete terms, what this looks like is constantly seeking feedback from students. How did this lesson go? What do you think about this online tool? How do you like to communicate? What is working for you? And then communicating with parents. Um, the leadership in my building, <laughs> building is a funny word to use right now, has just been incredible at meeting the social emotional needs of our families. So you know, we have academics that we're still trying to deliver, but on the other hand, we have we have families that are in crisis right now. I'm curious about how you've been talking about this pandemic and if you've been having any lesson plans that maybe harken back to pandemics of days past as a way to kind of teach kids now about what we're going through. Discussing things like the pandemic, like um, the election process, like this tension around communities of color in our relationships to law enforcement and, and government, these are the things that really engage the students. These are the things that they really want to talk about. So in my advanced placement world history class, I assigned a comparison essay uh, that asked them to use documents to compare responses to um, the flu pandemic of 1918 and what we knew at that point about 
responses to uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And what I heard from students was that it gave them a chance to take a step back and to say, okay, I've got this really tough moment that I'm living through. Well, how does this tough moment compare to the tough moments that others have lived through? Students this year are saying things to me like, Mr. Munoz, we're like really living in history right now. And I'll just kind of smirk and say, we were always living in history. But, you know, for them, they're saying this, this matters. As a teacher, what are you most looking forward to when that day comes that we can say the pandemic is behind us and maybe school starts to look the way it used to? The first week that we're back in person um, with everybody vaccinated and uh, more or less protected um, against this virus is going to be a day where teaching is going to be really difficult because young people will be so happy to see each other. We will be so happy to see each other. School is a sacred place. It's not just a place where knowledge and information is transmitted from one brain to the next. It's a place where we form relationships. It's a place where we form friendships. It's a place where we form a culture together. We've had to sort of think about letting go of things like controlling students and classroom management and behavior and focus more on how do we just stay connected. And I'm hoping that those are things that we continue to make priorities when we come out of this. Gerardo Munoz is Colorado's Teacher of the Year. He teaches social studies to middle and high schoolers at the Denver Center for International Studies. Gerardo, thanks again for joining us. And again, congratulations. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, we'll continue our series looking at the impacts of COVID-19 on Latinos in Weld County. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our show is produced with the help of Adam Reyes and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.